Session two. Session two, yeah. <laughs> Deja and, vu. Um, uh, coincidentally, uh, I've read uh, or, or I've come across two things recently that shows just what a relevant debate this is. Uh, John Dixon's Undeceptions podcast, the latest one's on the crucifixion, and he introduces a lady, an 85-year-old lady theologian who wrote a huge book on the crucifixion. Sort of going in a similar direction to us, we'd be more radical, but nonetheless her main point was that the penal substitutionary model has become a dominant metaphor and became so in the 19th century. Uh, and that's unfortunate because there are other, other models. And, and so actually that's a good podcast for people to listen to. Um, the, uh, the other one was really getting closer to where we're at, which was... Um, uh, a series of lectures by a Christian historian called Tim Larson on George MacDonald. Mm -hmm. And in setting the uh, context for George MacDonald's life, of course, he lived at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, he, he explained that 19th century Christianity in England had two eras. Uh, the first half of the 19th century was what he called... Um, the old, the old evangelicals and then the new evangelicals. The old evangelicals focus on the cross, um, are judging God and the holiness of God. Um, more and more people became unsatisfied with that and thought it neglected the love of God and thought it neglected creation. So they emphasised the incarnation. And, and he said, historically, this is when Christmas became a major mm. celebration. Um, it wasn't. Easter was. So, uh, very interesting. But what was interesting was the fact that on both sides of the fence, it was sort of either or. Um, so the, the new creationists couldn't synthesise the cross into their optimistic picture. Well, I mean, they didn't deny the cross, they didn't deny the resurrection, but uh, this challenge of getting cross and creation together um, is, was not a new one. Uh, so, um, last time we, we looked at the uh, penal substitutionary atonement model, we looked at its limitations, and I explained how, um, in terms of a problem-solving approach, if the cross is the solution, what's the problem it's, the, it's addressing? And the traditional model goes to sin, which is Genesis 3. But we said, well, what if you went back to creation? What if you went back to Genesis 1 and broadened the approach, asked a bigger question? And when you do that, of course, you'll, you might come back to the same solution, but you'll broaden it, you'll widen it. Um, and so this, you know, I, the critique I'd, I'd have of, of penal substitutionary atonement is that it um, starts too late in the story. Um, mm. And that if you go back earlier and ask bigger questions, you just have a broader paradigm. I mean, the most famous example of this that I know of was um, uh, Abraham Lincoln um, in the Gettysburg Address, uh, which was delivered... Um, at the consecration of the cemetery oh, yeah. uh, to bury the dead at Gettysburg, which was a three-day battle where I think more Americans died than died in the Vietnam War. Mm. I've actually been there. so one of the most yeah. spine-tingling places you can ever visit. It's a national shrine to, to look at the blood that was shed in such you know, these paddocks, beautiful rural paddocks. So as the, the victor, he had a, a problem, which was how do I say something that can unite North and South. How do, mm. how do I not sound like I'm triumphalist? So he began the speech very, very famous. Now, yeah. everybody, everybody there knew that the Civil War was fought over slavery. So the problem would have been slavery, and that's how anyone would have begun the speech, but he didn't. Didn't. No. He didn't. Three score. Famously, yes, four score. Four, four score. Four score, sure, four and score. seven years ago, our, our fathers, he went right back to the Declaration of the Independence. Yeah. And the... Um, the goals, the goals, which was um, can, can a nation forged around liberty, equality, fraternity ever survive? Can democracy survive? So 
he stretched the problem back. And once he did that, he then stretched the vision forward. And the vision famously at the end of the speech in those great, great words that, um, that uh, you know, democracy or, or, or government of the people, by the people and for the people should never perish from the earth. It was, so, so in thinking about anything, if you stretch the beginning back and you then will stretch the vision out, and in a way, that's what we're doing. We're saying if you actually went back to creation, you'll get a, you'll ask bigger questions. You've still got problems, but they'll be hmm. broader. So that's what, what we're trying to do. Um, and um, I think that uh, in doing that, there are, um, I think we're doing a few things. We're wanting to introduce new paradigms of thinking, which we'll get to in, in around this word atonement. Uh, within the penal substitutionary model, I think we're trying to unpick that and do a rather more um, careful job on the nature of the substitution. Um, but I think there's one other thing which we'll come to as well, which is one of the great theological weaknesses, a huge theological weakness of the penal substitutionary model, is it's got no resurrection in it. The resurrection is just an exit door. The resurrection is not mm. intrinsic. And I think once we go back to creation, it'll become so. So, hmm. so all right. So, in, I don't want to say in defence of penal substitution atonement, but I think your starting point where you said um, there are inadequacies in it, in that if you look at the, the, the history of atonement theories, and I've always liked the fact that atonement theories don't seem to get capital letters. They're just small letters. They don't turn up in the creed. And so there's always this... Uh, feeling that it's a work in progress, but every every few hundred years, people react to the previous atonement theory, and um, I'm, I, I, I can see how over the years uh, the, the the question has been more: How do I fix up the last one, <laughs> rather than how do I actually get a a big biblical view? And you know, in some ways, the, the, it's not a it's not a problem to say I just want to solve this little problem and, and, and understand how the sin thing works. But I think I think what happens is when you you focus on the death of Christ and the sin, sin thing, you you start to depreciate a whole lot of other things. So it's not. I think the the problem is when you're not aware of what you're doing, but that you're actually focusing in on something that. Yeah, as you said, we've got to reframe that whole problem to be uh, bigger. And and one of the reasons I, I would say that, I think I mentioned this last week, and I haven't done a lot of reading of the early church fathers, but when you read them, particularly the Eastern ones, they're difficult to read because they ask different questions to us. And one of my working hypotheses at the moment is that they seem, from my little reading, to be much more concerned about how do you glorify God and... If, if I'm going to glorify God, I'm going to need the Holy Spirit. And if I'm going to have the Holy Spirit, that's what we call salvation. So they, they seem to be much more focused on God and serving God, where Western individualism or however we've got here, um, we, we will preach that salvation is all about you. You know, if you were the last person on earth, Christ would die for you. So we, 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 we're, not, we're very selfish. We're very individualistic. It's all about us when we start talking about salvation, when we do evangelistic sermons. Where the early church, I think, I mean, this is a question for uh, David Bentley Hartley, who probably can rattle off things one way or the other. I, I, I think the early church asked bigger questions about how do we fit into the created order. Oh, far bigger. I mean, they, you know, my summary, my high-level summary of the patristics that I, I, I have read a lot of, actually, mm. Um, is that they invariably started with creation. Yep. They did not start with sin, and their question is, why does the uncreated God create anything at all? What's his purpose? What's his goal? And so they had a far higher vantage point. Mm. Um, and uh, by no means were they soft on sin, behaviour, or anything no. else. Um, so, um, but, uh, but uh, you are right. And um, by the way, one little point in... That, that phrase, penal substitution, because you're, you're softer on it than I am. That's <laughs> yeah, so my position to be a bit yeah. critical. But a word that I think is, is in there and that is okay, but 
narrow is substitution. Okay. The word substitution um, will suggest um, someone takes a bullet for me. Yeah. You know, um, and it does tend to be a bit of a slippery slope down into a position where I'm covered and I'm the criminal. Yep. So it, it, it's got that. It's got that side. Of it. Now, if you wanted a word that the patristics would have used to cover the same thing in a bigger way, their word would have been participation. There was co-participation between God and man and man and God. That's what they thought about. Still the same very much idea that we have someone on our behalf doing something. But anyway, I don't want to pursue one at the moment. But um, It's good. So you finished last time um, famously with the story of the dog. <laughs> and you brought a dog with it. <laughs> I've got two dogs here, which I'm taking care of. And Andrew here. If dogs start barking in the middle of this, please forgive us. Um, uh, that would be, that'd be, <laughs> that'd that'd be, be our just punishment. That's right, an acted parable of the... Um, I, I just want to say that, I just want to recall that. Sure. Um, uh, you know, what you said was... Um, the dog comes and urinates on the carpet, then you're sort of cranky because the dog's broken a moral code. If I urinate on the carpet, it's a bit different. Yep. Um, it's not so much I've broken a moral code as so, I'm way, I've disgraced myself, I'm below my station, um, which, which in simple terms, I think, is a really important gateway to the issue. The issue is not breaking a moral code, but surely falling short of a vocation yep. and of a calling. Um, and that then says, well, what's the vocation? What's the calling? Yeah. So what uh, tonight we'll do is we're still going back into what's the problem, mm. um, but we want to stretch. Uh, the, the metaphor I've got in my mind is going back into Genesis 1, stretching the coordinates mm. um, with some big words that I think we can stretch. And there are four of them. I mean, yep. There could be more, but four of them, which would give us new coordinates for the sin problem. The first is that word itself, yep. sin. Well, that's where we'll get in a moment. The second um, is the idea of holiness or a moral code. Uh, because as we said last time, the, the penal substitution model has a, has a, in the metaphor, it's implicit that the law is above the judge. Yeah. So therefore, it's God's the judge. There's a high moral code to which he must yeah. hold. <clears throat> so that's the second thing we'll talk about. Then the third thing, which is bundled up in the problem, is the wrath of God. That's a really important one because there's no question that reading the Old Testament and even past the New Testament, there's a lot of passages in there that taken face value give a picture of a, of a wrathful God. And it's a, it's a picture that scared a lot of people in their yep. lives. Um, and then the last one, which we'll probably, depending how we go, we might act, because this is the segue yeah. I think, into the future, is this dominion one. Um, and yeah. um, so four big words, yeah. beginning with the, the sin one. Yeah. And um, so I'm just here going to throw to you that the traditional model of, of sin that I've been aware of is... Like moral codes, yep. laws. Um, in previous talks, a long time ago, you know, I've critiqued that a lot because I think in Christian circles that that moral code is rather mysterious. It can use very mysterious behavioural stereotypes. Yeah, and, uh, becomes very introspective and um, and uh, and uh, certainly doesn't seem. T- it, it's a very negative model yep. of. Um, of growth, so there's a lot of problems with the word, but the word's still there. So, you've got a powerful matrix. Yep. Which and let, let's let's move towards the matrix by first saying that. So don't don't want to swap the order of moral code, but if you if you pick up most, I haven't actually I've not picked up most every every systematic theology I've picked up and looked at the definition of sin, it starts talking about this breach of a moral code. Breach of a moral code. And which is interesting because when you read deeper into it, you go, well, how did Adam breach a moral code? And what, what got me thinking about this was when the odd systematic theology was saying words to the effect of, well, obviously, when Adam and God were walking in the garden, that's when God was giving him the moral code. And I don't see that as obvious. And 
Yeah, it's, it's just... It probably does transgress what Paul himself starts to argue in Romans. Absolutely. The, it wasn't there. The, the law wasn't there. there it wasn't no. the moral code. There wasn't a moral point. code. So you've got this tension between your systematic theologies and Paul, which is... A problem. Yeah, it's a problem. So um, what, what I did is I just looked at Genesis 3 and tried to work out exactly what, what was it that Adam actually did. Uh, just just reduce it down to the barest essential first principle, what happened. And um, so it's Genesis 3, but what, what I think happens is that Adam simply does not trust that God intends good towards him. And that's the, the phrase that I keep on going back to. That, so that, that phrase is really important. Let's kind of I'll repeat yeah. it and get people. The, the, the key issue is Adam does not trust that yep. God intends good for you. Yep. And Whereas normally, I've always heard that as pride, the sin yeah, is yeah, pride yeah. and arrogance and self-sufficiency. Yeah, so the, uh, look, we, I've always noticed you know, since youth group days that we, we will say Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Um, but it, it seems interesting that when it comes to sin and how this, the problem started, we talk about a legal religious problem we don't actually talk about a relational, a relational problem. problem no so you go and that's that is bound up in personhood um and that's why i like the the example of the dog you know there, there's something there's something gone wrong and if if you, you stretch your mind and say what was god's purpose in creating and he he obviously had a purpose that was I think that that we we were supposed to learn how to be imitators of him under his tutelage in the garden. Uh, he he's got a very um, lofty plan for us. Very lofty plan. Yeah, and and what we did was chose not to trust him. Now this is this is where the matrix comes in, um, and we we should probably send a copy out of it. But what 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 the matrix simply has is. Um, Along the top, you have two, like it's a two by two matrix. The God intends good towards me, or God does not intend good towards me. And I trust, I believe that God intends good towards me, or I don't believe God intends good towards me. So if, if God does not intend good f toward me, and I don't intend, uh, I don't believe he intends good, then, then we, I've just got to protect myself from God because he's malevolent. Um, if, if God doesn't intend good towards me, but I believe he does, in, if, if I'm in that quadrant, then my problem is that I fall prey to his malevolence and life becomes difficult. And most, most people in the world um, have, have lived thinking that bottom box, I think. But I don't believe that God intends Yes. And... If you, if you move down to the, the other idea, which is, no, no, God does intend good towards me, um, then you either believe that's the case or you don't. Now, this is the important bit to think through. If we, we fall into the trap of using the word faith to mean a gateway into salvation because we're saved by faith, right? And all, all, all I'm really saying is there's more to salvation and faith than being a gateway to eternal life. What, what, what I think happens is, and, and we will talk more about this in weeks to come, that, that faith is what salvation is all about. Because if, if you go into eternity with God, where he intends good towards you, but you do not trust that he intends good towards you, you don't enjoy that fellowship, right? You, you, there's, there's nothing about that relationship you enjoy. So in what sense can you call it salvation? If, if you go into eternity, not trusting God intends good towards you, but he does intend good towards you. So if, if you've got that two by two matrix in mind, there's only one quadrant that you really can call the salvation quadrant. And that's where you have faith in God. And it's not, not simply a gateway. It's, it's, it is what salvation is all about, that you have a relationship where you can enjoy God's goodness towards you. Yes, I... Um just for the sake of the recording for the moment, since we're on Zoom, I'll, I might share my screen because I drew, I drew oh, yeah, your you matrix did. up as you were. It's beautiful. Uh, but he won't, I can't do it because, mm. um, Mark, you... 
You need to enable all the participants to share their screen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I could hold mine up. I don't worry. That's probably a bit hard. Um, it's too small. Too small. So we, I think just to, just to go through it, there's this really, really big issue at the top of everything, which is um, on one side of your matrix is what do I believe? Yep. Um, and on the other side is what's God like? So God is either totally, he's on our side and intends good for us, or God is like the pagan gods yep. uh, who... Who, who don't uh, intend good good for us, which was the predominantly pagan view of God. Um, I'm just going to try and share, if I can, <coughs> my... Um, I'll just see if I can do this, and if I, if I can't, um, we'll stop. Hey! So um, I think um, now people on the screen can see the, the, your matrix. Yeah. So on the top, there's a view of God. The, le the, the right hand side, God does not intend good for us. A scary God. And, yep. and I think this is a way of summarising the whole paganism where the gods were simply... Angry. Angry. Whether they were on our side or not, who knows? And I think Ian Province Chaotic. done a phenomenal um, job of explaining in the past this kind of fearful... So they're down that right-hand column. Yep. Um, and the and and I think a lot of the fears in Christianity um, of an angry God actually become pagan. So yeah. that's what people would say. Whereas the God does intend good to me. Um, I either believe that or I don't believe that. So the top quadrant of, of, of is where we want to get to. I believe. Yeah. But then, even though He does intend good for me down here, I don't. I actually don't believe it. I doubt yeah. it. Uh, uh, yeah. And that's where I can't enjoy. I can't enjoy. So in this one down the, down here where God I, God does intend good, but if I don't believe it, then I can't enter the relationship because no. this is a two-way relationship. And, I mean, we'd all know in our own relationships, one of the most frustrating things that I experience in a relationship is someone has misread my motives. Yep. They're not trusting me, um, and and it's so frustrating because yep. I can't do anything about it. That's yep. wrong. And once somebody's got into that cycle, hmm? that's not a period of feed. Oh, it's not okay. We'll, we'll give it up then. Um, yeah, once you get into that cycle of not trusting somebody, then there's no sense in which you enjoy that relationship. Yes, I think the other point you've made about this. Um, quadrant where the desirable quadrant is we believe that God intends good for us. Uh, the word faith, I, th I found that yeah. very interesting as to what, so because I, I've normally been used to the word faith as a passport or gateway, gateway. into a relationship. Yeah. That, that's how I think we tend to use it. You know, you, have, you believe God yeah. in order to get into the relationship. Whereas what you're saying, is probably, there's two, I mean, there's faithfulness of God. He is faithful. Yep. But then us believing is actually the enduring quality of connection and synthesis between us and God. Yeah. It's not a gateway. So you, you've got to pull back and start to think, well, what, what does, what, what are we expecting of salvation? Is it just, and I think this is a problem, when, when we spend all our time thinking about dealing with sin, it's very easy for us just to have um, a belief in a hope for non-hell rather than a hope for a great fellowship around a heavenly banquet with God. Like it, it, the, the attention's been on that side. Like how can I avoid the bad bits and not enough thinking about what the fellowship with God would be like. And, and yeah. So, um, so this is the first real stretch that yeah. the traditional view of the fall, which is transgressing moral codes, um, is, is inadequate. If we stretch it back to the goal of God in creation, then Adam's sin yeah. is not believing God intended good. Yeah. Um, now, I um, uh, mentioned to you, you that... Did. Uh, 
I, I stress it. I'd read, <coughs> I'd read some Kierkegaard. Yes, you did. Um, uh, and and I, I'd like to do that. Because, and this is just for those of you out there who, who might like to explore this further. This book, this book is entitled The Sickness Unto Death. Um, it's actually not a great title. It's not the best title, is it? But it's a phenomenal book. And it's quite short. Um, and if you ever uh, read Kierkegaard, he's... he's um, very knotty, and he uses um, he uses words in, a, in sometimes a strange way. But he's a very deep, deep thinker. So I thought I'd read his definition of sin, which is very, very similar mm. to what you've just said. And his definition of sin is one word: despair. He says sin is despair, and this is what he writes: um, sin is before God. In despair, not wanting to be oneself, or wanting in despair to be oneself. Mm. It's a bit that sentence got a lot of unpacking. But his point is, before God, that that before God, I am in despair, and I don't want to be myself. I hate myself. Yep. Now, when I first read that, I began to. Um, he called sin intensified weakness. Intensified weakness. Um, and he said, sin is the heightening of despair. And he says, uh, the emphasis is on before God. So he's going to say, I cannot, uh, I despair when I put myself before God. It's, that's yep. his way of saying exactly what you've said. I think so, yeah. The sin is, I don't believe God intends good yeah. for me. Now, if you want to pick up Kierkegaard and read it, by all means do, but I want to read a bit to, to everyone. It's beautiful. This is one of the greatest, um, I think, pieces of advice on evangelism for us all I've ever read. In which he says, um, uh, the, um, it's, I have to sit back and uh, uh, have a glass of wine while I read this because it is a couple of pages long, but it's well worth it. He says, one hears so much nowadays about people being offended by Christianity because it is so dark and dismal, being offended by its severity, etc. The best course would be simply to tell them that the real reason why people are offended by Christianity is that it is too elevated. Hmm. That its standard of measurement is not the human standard. That it wants to make humanity into something so extraordinary that he cannot grasp the thought of it. Um, and then he talks about the offence of this. Now he goes into a parable to explain what he means, and the parable is memorable. He said, if I were to imagine a poor day labourer and the mightiest emperor who ever lived, and this mightiest emperor took it into his head to send for the day labourer, who never had dreamed and neither had it entered into his heart that the emperor even knew of his existence and who would therefore count himself indescribably happy just to be allowed to see the emperor, something he could recount to his children and grandchildren as the most important event in his life. But if the emperor were to send for him and tell him he wanted to have him as his son-in-law, what then? Then humanly, the day labourer would be somewhat or very much at a loss, shamefaced, embarrassed. Humanly, it would strike him as something exceedingly odd and something in, uh, insane about which, about which he least of all would dare to say anything to any other person since in his own mind, he himself was already inclined to the explanation that the emperor wanted to make a fool of him something his neighbours near and far would very soon be much occupied with, so that the day labourer would be a laughing stock for the whole city, with his picture in the paper, the story of his betrothal to the emperor's daughter sold by the ballad wives. Yet being the emperor's son-in-law, that could well soon be a public fact, so that the day labourer would have the evidence of his own senses to confirm whether the emperor was serious or whether he wanted merely to make him make fun of the poor fellow, make him unhappy for the rest of his life and help him on his way to the madhouse. 
For here we have the, he calls it, excess, which can so infinitely easily turn into its opposite. Just a small, just a small kindness, a small kindness would have made <coughs> sense to the day labourer. That would be understood in the market town, by its highly respected, cultured public, by all the ballad wives, in short, by the 100,000 people who lived in that market town, which in, pure, uh, 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 which in regard to its grasp of and feeling for the extraordinary was very small. But this becoming a son-in-law, that was much too much. And suppose now that it wasn't a question of a public fact, but private, so that its truthfulness could not help the day labourer to be sure, but faith was the only way to know, and everything therefore was entrusted to faith, which is your point. Yeah. A question of whether he had uh, humble courage enough to dare to believe it. How many day labourers do you think would be offended? Uh, so, so how many day labourers do you think would have the courage? But the person who lacked that courage would be offended. For him, the extraordinary would sound almost as though it were a mockery of him. He would perhaps honestly and openly admit, this sort of thing is too exalted for me, I can't make sense of it. To put it bluntly, it strikes me as foolishness. And now, Christianity. Christianity teaches that this single human being, and so every single human being, whether husband, wife, servant girl, cabinet minister, merchant, barber, student, etc. This single human being is before God. That's his code word, is before God. Loved and noticed. Yeah. This single human <coughs> being, who might be proud to have spoken once in his life with the king, this human being who hasn't the least illusion of being on an intimate footing with this or that person, this human being is before God can talk with God any time he wants, certain of being heard. In short, this human being has an invitation to live on the most intimate footing with God. Furthermore, for this person's sake, for the sake of this very person too, God comes to the world, lets himself be born, suffers, dies. And this suffering God, he well nigh begs and implores this human being to accept the help offered to him. Truly, if there is anything one should lose one's mind over, this is it. And so on he goes. I think yeah, that's brilliant. Brilliant. Isn't it? It it's is. Like, it's too good to be true. Yeah, you, you know, tone the story down a little bit, and I can take it seriously. Yep. But this is too good to be true. But it's exactly what you are saying. That the 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 heart of it is: Do I believe? And we're like the kind of his day labourer. It's like. Right, let's tone this down. A yeah. Bit. And that's what Adam. How Adam, could this be true? <laughs> Adam did. <clears throat> yeah. So, so, so that, that's the first, I think, um, stretch yep. around this word sin that you and Kierkegaard <laughs> have, <laughs> have helped. Never been in the same sense as Kierkegaard before. Let's yeah. um, so we stretched it from a moral code to despair as to yeah. the love of God, uh, which does lead us on to the moral code. Um, I think you've really talked about that, but um, uh, really the idea of trust being intrinsic, that what God wants is relationship. Yeah. Um, and, and rather than thinking of God as judge <coughs> or arbiter with moral code, he's father or parent. Yeah. I think that's really what you were saying. And I, I think it's good to think through legal codes, moral codes, in that on, on the building that where our offices are, um, there's a fine, a sign that says there's a fine if you lead over the, the edge of the building for, you know, $500 or something like that. And... The, the punishment for breaking the legal code is not nearly as great as the reality that it's trying to protect you from, which is going 11 storeys to the ground. Um, and when you, speeding fines, right? Speeding fines are trivial compared with what they're trying to protect you against, you know, death of yourself or somebody else. And the, I think it's good to realise that moral codes, legal codes, are an abstraction from reality. They're, they're not the reality. They're, they're not the problem. Well, I think what you're saying is, in the best of circumstances, they're kind of guardrails. Best, yeah. Um, we won't go into it now, but um, I've long been impressed by an essay by John Milbank called Can Morality Be Christian? Hmm. Um, and uh, it's worth a read because his opening sentence is... No. <laughs> no. Um, and um, 
what what he sees in the limitations of morality is that uh, is essentially that what he calls the marks uh, of morality versus the marks of grace. Yeah. He has five of them, but that um, essentially morality is always defined by the negative. Yeah. In other words, you need sin, or you need error. Otherwise, the law makes no sense. So the first, his, yeah, yeah. I'll just give you one example, his first one, which is scarcity. So morality, uh, you know, do not steal, um, is built upon a principle of scarcity. The mark of grace is abundance. Yeah, yeah. And if indeed we lived in abundance and fullness and I said to you, do not steal, you wouldn't even understand what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just like, it's incomprehensible. <clears throat> And I think that was very powerful in um, in saying, well, once you've actually got a broken, fallen world, morality is there to kind of uh, stop negative behaviours, but it's not really describing life. No, no. Um, so anyway, that I think that, we can... That brings back memories for me, because my, my dad was very influential in my thinking and died when I was about 11. So any, any discussion we had was you know, aimed at someone who was very young. But I, I remember... For, for whatever reason, we were talking about the commandments and he said words to the effect that um, we, we're told not to steal because we're actually created to be generous people and we're, we're told not to lie because we're actually designed to be honest people. And I remember him saying, going, just going through it like that, and he said, when God tells you not to do these things, <clears throat> it's like telling you not to drink dirty water and not to eat food that's bad for you. Um, he's just trying to protect you from that. But we're actually created to drink good water and good food. So, yeah, he, 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 he made that distinction very early in my life. Well, it's a distinction. We don't come <clears throat> to it now that I, a lot of uh, positive psychology yeah. today uh, um, is making a great deal of or, or uh, strength-based mm. counselling, um, which, which is, you know, when I was a younger Christian, I thought that was all secular, and, and whereas now I think it's actually, it's a wisdom. It's a wisdom okay. that, that it's well known in um, human behaviour where performance matters that focusing on the good, not if you focus on the bad, you'll probably do it. Everyone yep. know, I always use the example of golf, but um, you know, if there's water down the right-hand side, all the way up the fairway, um, it do, the best players in the world, it's just like, don't hit the water, don't hit the water. And the last thing in your mind is the water. <laughs> yep. um, so you either go in the water or <clears throat> way right into the woods. Um, whereas, the positive frame, no, I'm hitting it down the yeah. fairway. And this was never true to me that when I was riding a bike, I was not good at it, but I had to weave between some poles, you know, on, yes. the, on the bike. And the minute I looked at the poles, everything wobbled. It was only when I looked at the gap and went through the gap. Yeah, yeah. Simple examples, but they can be multiplied into, into fairly major, major Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Um, well, the same thing, when we're teaching the children to drive, that, you know, we take them across the bridge, and it was important that you have some discussion where you've got to focus on where you want to go and the lane you're in. Don't focus on the traffic in the, in the lanes around you. Just focus on where you want to be. Yeah, and that's... Um, I, I actually think Paul um, builds his picture of how to live righteously in Romans 7 on the inadequacy of uh, sin to yeah. produce righteousness yeah, yeah. or the inadequacy of the law, sorry, the inadequacy of the law to produce righteousness, yep. um, whereas the Holy Spirit does. So that, that I think <clears> we, can, <throat> um, we can leave and move on to our, uh, the next one is, the, is, is really probably the big one for a lot of people, which is yep. the wrath of God. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I've heard people, you know, when you start talking about the love of God, say, yeah, but what about the wrath of God? Yeah. So I've got to balance <clears> that um, so, so what do you say about that? All right, so... Um, at college you learn enough Greek to be dangerous so but it, it seems to to a lot of people that uh, that word that we choose to translate wrath is, is just anger and indignation yeah, I know that <coughs> David uh, Bentley Hart often translates it as indignation indignation is, is, is a, a good word um, I was actually at a conference in November 2019 <clears throat> where there were seven different Bible translation societies there. And I, I raised with them certain words, and why do they translate them the way they do? And they said, well, 
we, we would not sell any copies if, you know, there'd be outrage. Like, we, we make little changes that we think are right and there's outrage in the community because they're used to what they've seen. So, which I think just raises the issue that someone's got to do the thinking and say, okay, let, let's, let's, let's ask those questions. And it seems to me that um, <clears throat> what, what we haven't done um, and, and we will have to do is sometime go back and look at the metaphors in scripture that are used to describe what was achieved by the cross and the atonement. And one of, one of those metaphors is, is about dealing with the wrath of God um, or dealing with the anger of God, if you like. And wh what you've got to do when you're looking at these metaphors is ask the question, um, is, is, the, this, does the, is, is the dealing with this metaphor, is that a result or a purpose for the... Um, the, the, the cross of Christ. So with, with the wrath of God, is it dealt with as a result of the cross or was the very purpose of the cross to deal with it? So I've, I've heard sermons where um, the, the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus and imagine you're in a, a steel smelter and you've got one of those melting pots where the, the iron is superheated and it's poured out on Jesus and that's the God's anger being poured out on Jesus. Now, this is, this is a problem because we've got a metaphor in Scripture and we've just added to the metaphor. Uh, there's, there's no reason to add that much illustration to it because you, you could be wandering a long way away from, from the, so, <clears throat> the intention. So what does it... Well, so you, you could you could equally say... I, I mean, this is the core of the matter, that, that the eternal <coughs> substitution model has God the Father pouring his wrath on God the Son in, in, to take punishment for us. In yeah, I, I think it's drifted that way, and that's certainly the, the, the thing that people notice, that they, 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 you know, Jesus has to die for me in my place, but there's got to be this anger that's dealt with at the same time. Um, and it's almost as if two things have to be achieved. And you, you can read that, that passage that, you know, imagine a bucket of water rather than a molten steel. And there's this, because it, it's not an unusual term uh, for when you're reading your, your Bible to say God poured something out, right? So it's just the idea that something's poured out and dealt with or, or no longer relevant is, is just a, a metaphor that's used quite a lot. And could it be that as a result of... Jesus' death, the sin problem, the, sorry, the, the wrath problem is dealt with, the anger problem, the indignation problem is dealt indignation with. Indignation with what? Uh, <clears throat> well, you see, I, I, again, I, when, when we were driving along and the kids would fight in the back of the car occasionally, you'd get... Occasionally, yeah, just, you had just, I've just got a vague recollection. <clears throat> the, um, you'd get annoyed, let's call it indignant, because they're doing things to hurt each other. And if they stopped, or, you know, one of the three decided to make peace and stopped it. it. I didn't continue on thinking, but when I get home, my anger's got to be appeased, right? I've got to, some, something's got to pay for the anger that I felt. Now, um, all, all that has, so there's no purpose, no, nothing has to be done purposely to get rid of the wrath, anger, wrath, indignation. Any indignation I've got for the little kids that I love goes as soon as they stop fighting. So what you're saying is that in, in the model of the wrath of God being poured out, there's behind it some view that that wrath is an end in itself. Yep. Um, it's the fine, it, it's, it's almost a higher good and a higher purpose than us. Yep. Uh, we've offended this higher principle and that that wrath needs to be appeased. Yep. Okay. But versus what you've just said is, no, no, the wrath or the indignation is subservient to love just, and, and purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not a common, uh, uncommon debate. This has been going on. And C.H. Dodd, I think, in the middle of last century was sort of vilified for being liberal, for not wanting... I think in the RSV Bible, he, he didn't want the word propitiation, he wanted the word expiation instead. So which carries the idea that, that something had to be dealt with, but it was incidental as opposed to the purpose of the whole thing, to, to simplify a bigger argument. And look, we, 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 when we list off all the metaphors that are used, there's about seven of them, it's good to think through how is, are these metaphors being used? Are they ends 
or are they means? Are but they purposes that, that, or results? That does raise, I think, this bigger <coughs> issue. I agree with the different metaphors, but the bigger issue is the creation gospel, if you start in Genesis 1, begins with purpose. Mm. God's purpose in creation and God's end in creation. To which one then comes back to, well, where would indignation fit in against that? And that purpose yep. is, the indignation is um, like a teacher or a coach as a means to an end, to a higher purpose. Yep. Um, versus it being an end in itself where the, the highest good is the moral code and the judgment of God and the righteousness of God. And we're incidental to that. That's Absolutely. the important thing. And, and that's what we're disagreeing with. I certainly am. Yeah. And, and, I mean, I, your story of the kids fighting in the back gave me a similar story. I mean, I've recently, uh, in the Breakfast with Jesus series, done quite a, I did a lot on Jeremiah. They were all on Jeremiah, but where the anger in Jeremiah for the first 10 chapters is the anger of a, of a, a yep. lover who has been betrayed. Yep. Um, but, but the metaphor I thought of about indignation, if I tell you a story, um, uh, somewhat based in fact, but you know, anonymous and changed a bit here and there, is the wayward teenager. The, way, the wayward teenager. Some parents have them, some parents have not. Mm. I, I have had wayward teenagers. Um, and uh, more wayward than I expected, which means trouble with the law. Okay, that yep. means trouble with the law. Um, and I had never expected myself as a you know, young parent. I mean, I, I dreamt of Bible studies with the kids and all this sort of stuff, but I didn't dream of court cases. Um, and um, so in a situation where we can imagine a 17-year-old, 16-year-old, Doing something wrong could be uh, drugs, uh, could be you know, misdemeanors. Yeah. Um, it's pretty shattering for the family. And what I've observed is there's two kind of forces that start to get at work here. One is the police and the whole system of prosecution and judgment. It's 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 kind of objective. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's also heartless. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's got its own bureaucracy, its own wheels in motion. It's actually frightening. It's, my experience of it was not far off Kafka's The Trial. Um, mm. And in the middle of it, I, um, we had to hire a lawyer in this particular case. But the, uh, the young lawyer was doing research on the experience of people go, going through the court system. Mm. And he interviewed people. Not one <coughs> of them understood what was happening. Really? Like, I don't know why I'm in this... It, it, it's just a bureaucracy you're in. Yeah. You're in a, a strange bureaucracy. And um, so, so there's a kind of an anger there. That's the judicial anger. Um, and it's chilling to be on the other side of it because um, my experience of it is, is that, to your point about it being an end in itself, the police have KPIs and so do the prosecutors... And in order to get law and order across, they've got to be yep. know, getting judgments. And the, the uh, my experience of them was that well, I'd, I would never trust the process, the process again in my life. And, and I'm, you know, I never mm. thought I'd have to say that. But that's what it's like. They they don't have my good at heart, or they don't have the child's good at heart. There was another anger, which was the huge fiery moral indignation of the parent. Uh, you know, absolutely indignant. Um, fiery anger at the child, with the child. Nothing to do with the moral code, but the disappointment. Yeah. Um, the betrayal of the family, your betrayal of yourself. Self. And who are, you can be and who I want you to be. Yeah. And... You know, the experience I've seen of particularly mothers who are so hurt, so hurt by the betrayal of that relationship. But, and on the other side, the, let's go to the errant teenager. Guess who the errant teenager was really frightened of? Yeah. Mum. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, uh, <coughs> and frightened yeah. of mum, not because of mum. Mum had no power in the system, all the powers. But what mum had, yeah. he loved Yeah, that's right. Mum is I've disappointed her. Yeah. And I know I'm going to have to work with her. Which is powerful. 
very powerful. And so I've seen indignation at work on, from a, a parent and from the judicial system. That there's, they're both there. And I think the, the, the indignation we're looking at with God is, is the indignation of a parent. Yeah. Um, the indignation of the disappointed parent uh, who, who has not surrendered by, you know, if the parent is wise, they know this is not the end of the road. This will probably be good for you. It'll be a slap on the wrist and I hope you grow up out of it. Yeah. Because the parent's um, goal is for the child's yeah. growth. Yeah. And look, I, I, lots of people will say the God of the Old Testament is the angry God. God of the New Testament is the, the you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But it, it is well worth, as I said last time, um, reading something like Leviticus, the first few chapters and how the sacrificial system is presented there and, and approaching it with different eyes and saying, is it God who's saying that I need a sacrificial system? Because in other places he says, I do not desire the blood of bulls and goats. So you get this idea that he doesn't need a sacrificial system. And again, once you realise you're in a world where everybody sacrifices because they're terrified of their gods and they don't know what limits to put on their sacrificing, so they'll end up killing little children, hoping that they'll appease these gods. So it's just an open-ended fear that they have. You've got, you've got these... Leviticus starts off by God saying, yeah, if you, if you do this or you feel this... Uh, Kill, kill, kill a bull, and, or, and, and if you can't afford that, kill a goat or a lamb, and if you can't do that, kill a bird. You know, it, it's sort of, it's, it's, it doesn't seem that God is demanding a sacrificial system. It seems that he knows that we will kill stuff if we're not... So, if, so what, you're, what you're saying is that um, the sacrificial system is, a, is subordinate to his fatherhood, his purposes and his love, and he's rather pragmatic in the sacrificial system. I think so. I, I, I think it's a condescension. It's a condescension. Absolute condescension. He, and he, he snatches defeat from the jaws of victory in that it's a great way to explain what Jesus is going to do. So he, he, it, it's developed. Um, mm. But, yeah, I, 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 and again, if, if you look at the times where God acts violently in Scripture, and there's only a handful of times... Firstly, his slow to anger gives people a lot of time to repent, and sometimes Nineveh did repent and then didn't repent. But the, what other scholars have noticed is that um, God tends to act when he hears the cries of people, of the oppressed. And God gets caught in this position where people are doing things to hurt other people, and he responds powerfully, violently, um, on occasion where... And the phrase is, the, the cries of the oppressed have reached my ears. And that's when he acts. So just to, to um, wrap that point back yeah. uh, into this point about the nature of the wrath of God or indignation of God um, and anger of God, that rather than God, I mean, that the offences in the Old Testament uh, in Book of Kings, the Book of Jeremiah, uh, um, are very often specified, yep. and the, including the events for which he was going to judge the nation with what yep. looked like obliteration. Um, and those offences were, I think they were of two sorts, almost exclusively idolatry, yep. and then social justice. Yep. And um, yeah. the, the one you're talking <clears throat> about, which is social justice, it was, mm. it was always the rich ruling class mm. oppressing the widows, the fatherless, the foreigners. Yep. And um, it was it was not the, the litany of sins that are mentioned. Yeah. Uh, and not the modern litany of sins. No, you no. Know, um, for instance, sexual sins are not mentioned there. Um, yep. And, um, you know, sins of pride or the, the sort of stereotypical evangelical list doesn't get a Guernsey. Um, but stuff like um, deceit, um, cooking the books, acquiring wealth while people around you are poor, yep. that's what gets a Guernsey. Yep. Um, now, to that end, then, if we went back to Genesis 1 and said, well, God's purpose was to create humanity in his image and dominion that would reflect his character. Yeah. His anger is, I'm not seeing that happening. A bit yep. like the angry parent, I'm really disappointed in you, we wanted more. Um, and so 
God cannot just put up with it and tolerate it because if he does that, his mission fails. His mission failure, and yeah. Humanity just becomes worse yeah, and worse yeah. and we're not getting what he wanted, what he created us for, which is the image of God. Yeah. And I like mission failure much better than righteous failure. That, if, that's a good phrase, I think. Yeah. You know, I, I just, I, I like that just as you said it, mission failure. Yeah. In other words... I thought you said it. But there you. I, said that, <laughs> yeah. right, okay. I just copied you. I said that. <clears throat> well, no, that's a good way to put it, but that, because it says that in order to understand Genesis 3, in order to understand Genesis 4, and then it's the failure of the mission. Yep. Um, or the apparent failure of the mission. We know that in, and we could go to this next time, but in God's plan... Um, that was not a failure at all, but leading towards his ultimate imaging of himself in, in the cross. But mm. um, certainly uh, the, the, the deeper analysis of the nature of, of the wrath of God, the indignation of God, and the circumstances that led to yeah. it make a lot of sense when you go back to Genesis 1 and Mission. Yeah, Covenant. absolutely. The other one I, I thought, just before we finish off on the indignation one, is uh, I mean I, I've been <coughs> just before on the parent. I mean I've been indignant and angry in in roles in my life as a teacher, as a coach, um, as a parent, as a boss. And I think I, 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 there are many circumstances I can think of, and I never ever felt wrong about it. Mm. It was you know I had to be controlled and not actually. Yeah, yeah you know, become um, erratic or whatever, but I was righteously angry because, and it was all to do with mission failure. Yeah. And, but I, I, I was always framing it with a view towards getting out of it and I want you to grow out of it. So we're, we're saying this indignation is a coaching tactic, as it were, an educational tactic to, to bring humanity to where he wants it to be. Yeah. It, yeah, it's a symptom. Mm. So on this... I think going forward, we've, we've got to make sure that we do justice to all the metaphors, not just the, the anger one. But I, I do think the anger one is the one that confuses most people. Yes, it is. And the, the reason I meant, mentioned Leviticus and so forth is pe people will say, what about the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus? What about the sacrificial system? Uh, what about God actually doing violent things against people who, you realise, the cries of the oppressed have reached out. And there, there, there are other comparisons you can do. If, and if, if you sensitively read and do comparisons where you, 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 it doesn't take you long to realise what, what is going on. And yeah. that, that stereotype of the God of the Old Testament. It is. And I think the other thing, just to mention briefly, um, I think Brad Jerzak has uh, <coughs> said and some great things about this. Um, idea of wrath okay so mm. Jesus under you know underwent wrath but he's he he famous uh, I don't know, famously but Brad has a very effectively renamed Jonathan Edwards infamous sermon sinners, yes sinners in the hands of an angry God yeah. as a God uh, in the hands of angry sinners yeah. Um, yeah, the, yeah, the wrath yeah. that was poured out yeah, was Pontius Pilate and um, it was the worst of, of human wrath that God Allowed. subject to and this uh, and on the underceptions um, recording I, I mentioned earlier the lady I think her name is Rutledge but uh, she I thought she very well said this idea of God against God is is wrong it was God the Father absolutely. God the Son God the Holy Spirit they endured the wrath yeah. of absolutely as she said the capital P powers of death the capital P political powers and God was subjected to as far as uh, the God, God surrendered to it. He sent his son into a, a mission that was going to cost him. But the cost and the, the, real, the real vicious anger was human anger against, yeah. against God. Absolutely. And yes. so, you know, spoiler alert, where one of the things I think we'll end up realising, and this lady obviously has, is there, there's been a progression in atonement theories, which is... Uh, because because there is a, an exchange or payment ransom metaphor being used, people say, who's the payment got to be made to? And you go, well, there is no payment. There is no exchange. It's a metaphor. Um, firstly, it was to Satan. Then people said, no, no, it can't be to Satan. It's got to be to God. But 
I, I think a very cogent argument can be put together to say, no, no, there's a real sense in which the payment is made to us. It's made to us. Yeah, we're the we, ones who required it. We're the ones who needed it. We needed it. Yeah. And we, I, we don't want to play any... Yeah, there's some silly games you can play to make that work. But no, I, I think we can actually do a, a big paradigm shift and go, no, no, there's a real sense in which to, to keep um, the metaphysics of personhood working, there's, it, that it makes more sense. If you, if you pull back the, your, your view of Genesis 1 and to 3... And, and have a wider view, uh, a payment that we required actually can make more sense. But that, that's we good. We might look into that. We'll look into that. That's, it's that's fun. Um, the, um, uh, I, I, by the way, I did want to add one more point to the idolatry issue. You know, <coughs> yep. is angry at idolatry. Yeah. Um, uh, this anger at idolatry, I think, can be seen as... Um, Supporting the idea of an offended God, yep. whose honour is offended. And, yes, um, absolutely. Yep, um, yep, yep. And therefore, um, is, he is angry because you preferred other gods to him. And I think that's entirely wrong. I think actually what an idol is uh, in the pagan mind, uh, the idolatrous system was much closer to what you're talking about, which is I don't think the gods really like me. Yeah. And I've got to appease them and play their games and, and hope I can avoid um, them. Yep. Um, and so the, the idols who, to whom you made sacrifices, you're trying to buy them off and keep them off your, off your back. In fact, that mindset is exactly the mindset that you and Kierkegaard yeah. um, were talking about. That for the human being to think we're that important, we're that um, amplified, we're called to the, no, no, can't, can't, be, can't be true. We've, we've got to be ants crawling around mm. uh, with the gods, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, 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 <clears throat> King Lear's famous words as uh, flies to wanton boys, so are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. Um, and, and I think that's the sin. Yeah. That's the sin. That, well, uh, interestingly, when, when you compare 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, to one and two chronicles. Um, I heard a great podcast on this where it, it, it just outlined the differences. So in, um, in, in Samuel, you, one of the big events is Bathsheba. She doesn't get a mention in chronicles, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the, the illustration they used or how they illustrated it is if, if one, one of them, well, that first set of four books, Samuel and Kings, is like um, if you were in the Vietnam War hearing news reports, this is what you would have said was the problem. This is what was going on. And there's, there's reference to idolatry, a lot of idolatry in Kings and immoral, immorality of David. Bathsheba, instance, really shapes the whole thing. You've got his sons running around. By the time you get to Chronicles, which is well and truly after the war. It's a documentary where, you know, the um, dust has settled. You're, you're thinking through what's gone on. And the history, it's, it's the History Channel looking back. That's right. And well, it, it doesn't say anything that denies anything in 1 Samuel or, or 1 and 2 Kings, but it's got a different perspective. And, and with the value or benefit of hindsight, uh, it goes much more in, oh, we, we didn't behave like God's people. You know, the, the rich were, were oppressing. We, we just were not. Uh, reflecting to, to, God. To, to positively frame. We, yeah, we were not reflecting God. Well, um, I'm going to leave the fourth one because we've been going for over yeah. now. And the fourth one's a big one. I think it's Dominion. It's um, a big one. And that's really going to be a real segue into, I think, a, to be honest with you, not just another metaphor, but actually a paradigm. Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, a paradigm around what happened at the cross. I mean, one thing about this podcast I heard today... Um, on Undeceptions, which I'd recommend to people, is the first half, as I mean, John, John is a historian, and the first half with this lady was um, making the shockingness mm. of resurrection real. Um, you know, that her view is people are so glib about it. Yep. And um, it was the point she made, which was extraordinary and probably a point that had never been clear enough to me before it wasn't just physical suffering it wasn't all of that that was pretty yeah, shocking no, no. it was 
reserved to obliterate the identity of the of, of the the executed one. Mm. Um, they were invariably slaves, low class. They, having been executed, would, the bodies were just burned. It was it, back in the day. It was just their way of of turning totally anonymous um, and exterminating the very identity of that person, their family, and who they were. Um, as a result, um, according to her, the uh, in sophisticated Roman society, they wouldn't even mention the word crucifixion. Yeah. That, yeah. It was too shocking to mention. Yep. They wouldn't even talk about it. And nobody, there is no record, because of what I've just said, there's no record of anybody uh, being crucified. You know, there's no, there's no, we don't have any... We just don't have any names of other people. Yeah, they, yeah. They, 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 there might be one or two candidates they've discovered with archaeology, but the Romans were successful. Mm. They totally turned anonymous. And how is it then that the most um, <coughs> uh, you know, pervasive yeah, hero yeah. story in all of the world was based upon a cross? Yep. It's just complete turnaround from anonymity to lordship it's yeah. it's just and the amount of thought experiments like once you've you've got the idea that all right jesus has got to die on our behalf why couldn't he die in his sleep you know the, the, why did it have to be like she that, asked that question. Did you? <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great question anyway well that takes us to another all, rabbit hole all, all my point is to say that um Part of my goal for myself as we go through this is not to sort of shrink the cross, no. but to actually expand it. And the view of the hugeness of yep. the transformation and work done there um, is what um, I'm hoping by taking the bigger picture from Genesis 1 yeah. we'll get. And I think the um, absolutely critical part of it, which um, I've already alluded to, is that in which we can talk about next time, which will come much more into the dominion thing, is to reintegrate the resurrection and the, with the cross as a integrated event. Hmm. So we'll do that next time. Next time. Thank you, Andrew. And you're Thank off uh, to Africa tomorrow. Godspeed. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. In your um, wonderful technology, not-for-profit enterprise. It's exciting. Which we must have a little gospel conversations thing on one day when you're free to talk about it. Beautiful, yeah. Um, faith love at to. work is faith at yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to talk about it. So uh, we'll, we'll finish there.